Hello, Jared Ray Johnson. Nice to meet you.、Hey. Nice to meet you as well. <laughs> You're over in Greenpoint,、um, New York, Brooklyn, New York.、Um, yes. It's, it's, it's evening for you, it's morning for me.、Um, yeah. Yeah. And like you make, you make mountaineering boots under the brand called Season 3. And、um, what's crazy about. Your whole project is like you started, you've kind of launched in January this year. Is that right? Yeah, which is、yeah. like a crazy year to be starting a brand, but really interesting at the same time. And, and your background transitioning from、um, your previous career into what you do now is also really interesting to me.、Um, so, for folks out there who, who don't know about season three, do you want to just give us a little? Rundown of what that's about? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Season 3 is a direct consumer footwear brand. And as you mentioned, we you know, we launched with a mountaineering boot. So, it's more of a like a hiking boot that is meant to be used in the city. It's meant to be something you walk around in, but it's something that has the capabilities to where if you wanted to actually go hiking or use it in a more technical way, you could.、Um, and I think the way we think about ourselves is. We, you know, we're trying to bridge the gap between what a heritage brand really is and what a direct consumer brand is. So we kind of take lessons from both of those kind of ends of the spectrum to try to create something that is authentic to us and what we want to create, but also modern and, you know, like with modern technology and modern marketing, modern, you know, ways of communicating and working. So, I mean, like, um, I, I hear you have a business partner. Is this just the two of you doing everything、um, from like design to overseeing production to marketing, yada, yada, yada like every accounting?、Yeah. Is, that, is that the、yeah. picture? <laughs> startup style? Yeah, so it's very, very startup style, two co founders. So, yeah, my partner, Adam Klein. Uh, we launched it together and we have done every part of the process kind of hand in hand. I think one of the things that's like, whenever we talk to people, they're always like, all right, so who does this and who does that? And like, the truth is, we both like have our hands in every single thing, which I think is the only way to do it. Absolutely.、Um, but I think that, yeah, we worked. We, I, I will say though, is we've got a lot of help along the way. So, like, I like to think of our team as like a much bigger group, even though it's two co founders. is Because we've had so much external help from advisors to you know, mentors to people who were just willing to work with us, friends、mm. uh, who work with us for free or show us how to do things. So I think we've, it's been a learning process. Everything we've done has been the first time we've done it.、Um, nice. But that's, that's how, we, how we work. Yeah, man. Like, I feel like、um, a lot of people from the outside, people who might not have their own business or, or work in a small business, they, don't, they kind of think that things just like, you know, with startups or with new brands, even small brands, medium sized brands, like, there's like a huge team. Like, my brand, there's、yeah. only three of us.、Um, and、right. I started out. Working seven days a week、uh, by myself, doing everything myself, just the one person. And like, that's how it is.、Um, yeah. Can you tell me about like、um, the kind of learning curves? I'm sure there's been a lot of steep learning curves,、um, yeah. you know, in this short space of time. What are like、yeah. the real biggest learning curves you've gone through? And like, how are you navigating、um, this? Really crazy landscape right now. I'm sure you didn't predict、yeah. <laughs> the COVID 19 thing to happen. Yeah, tell、Absolutely、us about、not. that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's like been every stage has its own extremely steep learning curve. So at the beginning, when it was just an idea, and it's the two of us who have no background in manufacturing, no background in design, no background in marketing,、uh, consumer product. We're looking at like all of this stuff that we have to do, and we're just like, okay, we got to start somewhere, you know?、Mm. So we knew we wanted to make a boot. Like the original idea was based around let's, can we make a better winter boot? And better for us meant, you know, it's not going to be hot, it's not going to be bulky, it's not going to be something that you want to take off your feet as soon as you go inside. 
it's going to be something you can really wear all day and in any kind of weather or circumstance. So with that kind of like grain of an idea, we're like, okay, well, first we've got to figure out how to even make a boot. Like, how do we design a boot? I've seen like technical sketches and drawings of footwear before. Like I've, I've loved, you know, shoes all my life and love sneakers. So like I'm kind of into that, but I've never done it myself. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so getting there was a process of, you know, let's first just try to create like a mood board. This like, you know, gather as many images as possible as what are we going for so that we can at least try to communicate the idea to someone else with mm-hmm. some kind of visual imagery. And then we can get somebody to help us, you know, translate that into a starting point. And that kind of has been our thing for, I'd say every task is like, we usually try to get help so that we can establish a starting point because once we have that, we can tinker, you know, like crazy. So yeah, that was a huge learning curve on design was getting first, you know, being able to communicate the idea, getting help to translate into some kind of initial sketch and then tinkering with the sketches throughout to mm. kind of create something that we thought at least on paper would look good. And yeah. then putting in the production and prototyping was a whole different challenge like that made there, there, there became so many different factors because, you know, when it's on paper, we aren't really thinking about materials. Mm. We aren't really thinking about, you know, different color patterns and, you know, what, you know, what kind of leather, what grade leather are we going for? We're really just thinking like, we want it to be nice. We yeah. want it to look good. And like we fit want it to have the as well. integrity. Yeah, fit. Right. Yeah. Fit, materials, um, functionality. Like there's yeah. so many aspects in making one product that like I think that's why there's that huge sneakerhead culture is because like yeah. so much goes into footwear design actually. Like footwear design and development. Same as I would say same as bag design as well. It's really expensive yeah. to like prototype a new bag. And I, I would I would assume I've never like made shoes from scratch myself. Mm-hmm. I've done like a I've done collaborations with like um, Yucatan who are like um, LA based um, shoemakers, but you know, they really did most of the technical like uh, handholding part. But I would assume that there's so much, um, so much development. Probably you went through a a few prototypes as well um, in the process. But for me, like design is like really, I think this I think you went from a really good starting point of like starting from a conceptual point and visualizing what exactly it is you want because sometimes I feel like um that's that is like the most important part of design is right. like the kind of more conceptual philosophical um starting point of what you want this this product to communicate or to reflect in our culture and how what right. kind of values um, you want this product to to reflect which is yeah so important but um, yeah like so let's find back because your previous yeah. career you started you started out in finance um, yeah so tell me about your experience um, in finance and what made yeah. you kind of transition into this new completely new direction yeah. I mean, so when I was in college, I think that the the timeline kind of starts and it's interesting we're in this point in time in history now, but I started college in 2008. So it was right in the midst of the global recession and it felt like the world was falling apart. And I'm somebody who, like, I guess I'm just like, I love learning. That's what, mm. in, you know, drives me and I'm passionate about. So I thought, you know, the world's falling apart. I really want to understand why. And a lot of, you know, the learning and lessons, you know, from that time centered around the world of finance and Wall Street. Mm. So that kind of curiosity carried me through college and ended up blossoming into a career in Wall Street. And also, I mean, I think I was also just motivated by the idea of it because I was from, you know, I grew up in St. Louis. I knew no one who worked on Wall Street. Like that's a foreign outside of movies and you know, finance and traders and stuff like images and pop culture. Like I had no connection and no real understanding yeah, right. of what that was. So I was just curious about it. And I, you know, once it started to be something like that I felt like was within reach, I like just went for it. And I was also, you know, enamored with New York and it was a way to move to New York. So yeah, I, I ended up working 
for a bank in New York for five years. And I think what's interesting about that time is, you know, I was so interested on my way in. Like I was, I couldn't, I had read so many different books about finance from just like technical stuff to, you know, philosophical, you know, uh, thinking about the markets and the impact on like the global economy. Mm. But then like every day, it was almost like every month that passed, I just became less interested. Like, I think it was one of those things where the more I learned, the more it was like the mystery was being, you know, it wasn't as mysterious, Mm -hmm. like this one big thing I didn't understand and I started to really get an understanding. And I think I just became less passionate over time. So I started to think about like, what do I want to do? Like, how do I, you know, what am I passionate about? What do I want to do with my life? (laughs) Kind of like moment, you know, as I'm like 23 and that's I, pretty um, early man to like have this kind of life-changing <laughs> thought process yeah. yeah i mean i guess so but i think it's it, it was i think the reason it hit me so hard is that like in college i think i would have told you that like oh if i can get a job here like i would work there forever that's my career like i'll always like work in finance and be a banker like i, I kind of like the idea of it so much that so i was like sign me up that sounds good Um, and then, you know, as time goes by and I'm becoming less passionate, I'm like, this doesn't satisfy for me, but at the same time I'm in New York and it's, you know, inspiring me and stimulating me in all these other ways. Like I'm, I'm like, I'm from St. Louis and I used to love going to concerts when I was growing up in like high school and in college as well. And like, it was, it's just like amazing. Like, Oh, I can go to three concerts a week in New York. I can like go to different gallery shows. I can do all of these things that I'm interested in. So then I had this hunch that it's something creative. It's something about me doing, contributing in a creative way. Can I find that? So, and I'm like, I guess I was an art kid growing up. Like I used to, you know, draw and take a lot of different classes, but it was something I didn't cultivate through college or, you know, later in life or that's early in life, but still at that point. Um, So I started actually taking drawing classes in the city. So there's a there's like an art school called the uh, Art Students League on like 57, and I took um, like figure drawing classes there, and then School of Visual Arts I took interior uh, like kind of perspective drawing classes, and I was gearing up to apply to architecture school, and I was thinking Whoa. I could build a portfolio and I can go to architecture school, I can make this huge career pivot and do like something completely different, yeah. um, and I think that the more time I kind of sat on that idea, it just felt like an impossible leap. Like I just didn't, I wasn't sure that I wanted to be an architect. So it felt like, what am I doing? (laughs) Like trying to go and like throw away a career that, you know, by all accounts, like if, you know, if I went and talked to my friends, they would all be so like, I'm so proud of you. You're doing great things. You're, you know, you work on wall street. That's great. Uh, But I'm like miserable, you know? (laughs) So I, I, uh, I ended up using graduate school as kind of the parachute escape, which is common and, you know, for people who work in banks and, and finance to kind of exit and come back. But I right. used it as an exit where I knew I wasn't coming back. Um, and I just figured, like, I'm going to give myself some time to try my hand at a number of different things, see if I'm fall in love with something, mm-hmm. see if I can find that creative outlet and, you know, take my kind of career from there. Yeah, I think learning is such a beautiful, like it's it's a real, like don't take this the wrong way. It's such a luxury to learn, yeah. like to be in an environment where you, you're purely dedicated to like self-exploration and learning yeah. and opening new doors. It's such a, like an important thing. And I think like this year in particular, a lot of people are having identity crises and rethinking like what, their what meaning they have like what their life you know what kind of meaning they find in their life and um and yeah I feel like there's this story is like quite it's just so relatable because you know a lot of people kind of you you you, I feel like when we grow up we just we just go through these steps of like what we think we're supposed to be but we never ask ourselves like why am I doing this like why do I like this? Or like, what, who am I? Like, um, so, um, so I think like learning is just such a great space where, yeah, you can really dedicate that to yourself and get to know yourself a bit better. Um, so yeah, yeah, 
finance to to making like product seems like yeah quite to actually tell me um what was it I mean what kind of music were you what kind of concerts were you going to what kind mm-hmm. of music were you into and, and what yeah. kind of creative juju inspired you in New York yeah I so I'm a huge rap music fan so it, like most of the concerts and shows I was going to were rap concerts but I mean I, I would see a lot of like electronic acts as well but I would say the base of my interest has always been rap. So I, there were so many shows. Do you have any specific era? Yeah. So the time, well, that I'm a fan of, I'm a fan. So I, so I'm one of those people that, you know, when I was, I would say like, you know, younger, when I was in my teenage years and like early twenties, I was definitely one of those people who was like, Oh, I love like nineties golden era rap. Like that's my, like, nothing will ever be as good as this. This is like, I, I like was like, I'm going to listen to Nas Illmatic like 70 times a day. Like I was that person. And then something happened to where like a switch flipped and I'm just, I, I started to allow myself to actually enjoy like contemporary mm. music in a way that I think I was like preventing myself like arbitrarily. Um, but I think, so when I was in college, uh, it was when ASAP Rocky had just like, his career oh, had just started when yeah, he, yeah. while I was in college. So it was kind of like the idea of this rebirth and energy around New York rap being a thing again also was a thing that just like made me more enamored with New York. So I, I was able to see, like I, I probably saw ASAP Rocky probably like four or five times during my first couple of years when I was in living in the city at different types of shows, like venues as small as like rooms with like only a couple hundred people wow. and to like, you know, larger, like, kind of like festival type things like fool's gold day off was a big thing back then and it, and they had a big performance there so that was like a big that was like a big part of my life because wow. it was it, it was also an era where a lot of the i guess it was like it was social media was so different then yeah where it was like a lot of the um i would say media like blogs and media were still organizing shows and doing a lot. Like a, mm. they had a lot of kind of collaboration and contributed a lot to like the live music scene. And so there were so many free shows that you just had to like, you know, register or like, Amazing. if you retweet this, we'll pick you to go, you know? So there were so many things like that where it's like, oh, I, I, I entered to go to this show at some undisclosed location on Thursday night. Like hopefully I win it. Um, wow. So that, that happened a lot. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's it. Like, that's so amazing to me. Like, I mean, I grew up like the, the when I was in high school and, and university, like I spend that time in Australia, which is like paradise at mm-hmm. the end of the world. So like bands rarely toured. Um, yeah. But but internally, there was like a really strong music scene, like amongst Australian musicians. So it was really strong, like um, music culture. But just like the idea of like free shows all the time, like yeah. just being in New York is incredible. And like taking advantage of that, like all the culture that surrounds you in, in such yeah. an inspiring city. Um, but like... Uh, like New York is a place where it is really tough to to survive. Like things are really expensive. It's really competitive, yeah. um, and like yeah, like it is a scene where where you know it's quite cutthroat, and you feel that in the environment. Um, like so, this year has been like such a, a change for everyone, um, and I think things are getting increasingly tougher in in New York um do you think like do you see uh, I would say a lot of friends who have brands have moved over to LA um do you see Mm -hmm. yourself staying in this rich cultural epicenter of New York for the for the next like two to three years so it's it's a resounding yes but it's interesting because if you were to ask me like eight weeks ago, you know, it would have been a, a, a different answer. Like early on when, so early on when things really uh, got dire in New York in March, I was definitely on the, the wave of like, mm. 
maybe I'll move to LA. Like this is the case for everybody who lives in New York, but like Mm -hmm. you always have friends that move to LA and I, we have a bunch of friends and partners and people who we've collaborated with actually, you know, on season three that moved to LA last Mm -hmm. year or or the kind of in the past couple of years. So it was one of these things where it's like, maybe this is, you know, the time for us. Mm -hmm. Maybe this is something that we should do. Um, Because it also is a situation where quarantining in New York, you know, it's hard to say that it's worse for anybody, but it's one of those things where on average, you're probably in a smaller apartment and walking outside feels more of a treacherous thing. Back, you know, back in early March, we didn't know if it, if it was an airborne situation mm-hmm. where it's like, if I walk outside, am I just exposing myself? Yeah. You know, like, do I, what kind of mask do I need to wear? Like it was so, there was such a, a lack of information and there mm-hmm. was so much panic. And, and the situation was really serious. Like, you know, everybody who was living here, you know, has stories of people who were affected. And, you know, late at night, you would hear just ambulances, you know, going up and down the streets. And it just was a, a scary, a scary time. So I think in that darkness, <laughs> I think I, like many people, started to think of, you know, what should I do? Should I go somewhere else? Is season three better off somewhere else? Um, but I think as time has kind of moved on, and things have shaken out, I, I'm I'm doubling down, tripling down as much as I can on New York, just because I believe that in many ways, in New York needed to, to be pushed back a little bit. New York had started to become a place that is different than, you know, what it's been in its past. And I mean, that's, you know, always the case for any city, it's always evolving. But I think yes. that You know, New York is a place where you've got so much, you know, you've always had Wall Street, you've always had media, you've always had, uh, you know, fashion and retail. But I think that the introduction of tech into New York City as just like, you know, from an economic point of view is just something that's just it's such an insane scale that I think it's hard to really understand. Like, you know, Google has employees here than I think anywhere else besides, you know, their, their Mountain View office. And the same is, you know, becoming true for Amazon, the same is becoming true for Facebook and all of these, you know, employees and all of these companies and all of this money has been being piled into the city. And it's, you know, it's changing the landscape. It's, it's, It's changing the landscape and it's making it increasingly difficult for people to take risk and, you know, Mm. to move here on a whim. I think that to me, I mean, historically, I I feel like the beauty of a place like New York has always been that if you were willing to put up with it and you were willing to work hard, you could make it, you know, and like, that's not going to be pretty. You know, when I first moved here, I had friends that worked, a lot of them were, were in the, the restaurant, you know, industry and like they would work they would be employed at any given time at four different places. They would work shifts anywhere they can get them, you know, and it would be long hours, grueling work, you know, just to afford and get, get by. But there was something about the city that made them stay, despite the fact that it was harder for them, you know, than if they were to just move back home or wherever they they might go. So I think that that's the type of, you know, those type of opportunities, I think were being squeezed out a bit. So I think that for us, you know, as a company that, you know, like we don't, I would never want to envision having some company that's just some like walled, you know, walled off, you know, thing from the rest of the world where it's just like, okay, our company exists inside these four walls. And, yes. you know, we're, 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 we're growing and doing whatever we need to do. Like, yeah. I'm very much believe in being connected to the ecosystem and connected to the people connected to, you know, because that's where we get inspiration from. Those are the people we collaborate with and work with. Um, so, if those people can't live here, if those people who are, you know, friends of mine that or people we admire can't live here, or can't afford it or aren't interested, I think it becomes a worse place. Mm, so the, I the, think the idea of community dissolves. Um, so tell me about your the model of your business, because um, you are a direct to consumer biz, um, business. Um, so tell me about why you decided to structure this way and like how has that worked out? Um, in the, the the few months, the, the six months or more um, space that you've existed, how has it played out for you? Yeah. So for the longest time, we resisted calling ourselves direct consumer. I'm not. I'm Why? not sure. So is your is your your brand? I'm not sure. Do you guys do any wholesale? 
Yeah, we do wholesale. And that's really, okay. I feel like it's really because it's really hard to meet minimum minimums with factories okay. like, if you don't yeah. do that. Yeah, but it does hike up the price of product quite, you know, quite a yes. lot. Yeah. So, so you guys wouldn't call yourself a direct consumer brand? Or no. Would I think, honestly, yeah. like 75% of our business is wholesale. It's huge. Okay. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think early on we resisted because we felt like it was an association with the types of brands which we personally didn't identify with. Mm-hmm. And I think it was also thinking about the image because we're two business school people. We're two business people. My, my uh, co-founder has a similar background to mine, but the added wrench is that he's also a lawyer. So it, it's one of those things where it's like these law and finance, you know, MBA graduates launching another great consumer company. That sounds like many companies that you and I could name, you know, uh, but we aren't fans of, you know, those, those not to disparage them, but the way that they operate, the way that they focus on growth at all costs is runs counter to my idea of mm. building a brand um, and runs counter to my idea of, you know, what I personally, what makes me, you know, have some love and, you know, loyalty, I guess, to, to the brands that I, mm. that I feel that way so we were like, well, we don't want to be that. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it feels like we're, you know, throwing people in that direction by even using the terminology direct consumer. But I think the other thing is with the wholesale, we also thought about, okay, if there's an advantage. The, the one thing that those companies do have is their idea of, you know, we can produce at factories that make high quality goods and we can produce a high quality good. And if we don't sell it in the traditional wholesale model where, you know, now there's six, six markups, you know, it's just insanity. Um, if we don't do that, we can offer the consumer a, a lower price and, you know, reach a broader audience. And that's great. Um, so that's something where that idea we love, we just didn't love the kind of branding and connotation that came with it. And we also didn't love the way that it seemed the model was changing or the model was attempted to change in fashion where, you know, I think the, the way I think about, you know, if you're scaling a tech company or something else, it's really just like, oh, if I can get as many people to download this app as possible, that's great, right? Because mm. some of them will, you know, stop using it. But like, really, I just want more and more people to use it. And, you know, therefore, we have something that has value. I think brands are very different. You know, if you have yes. some product that you can get on a million people instantly, that sounds like a great idea. But if it happens, that sounds like, like a nightmare to me. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, well, one the production side of it sounds like a nightmare. But even if you're able to do it and you're able to get it, and you have a million people wearing your your stuff like instantly overnight, it's like that's a recipe for a brand that's going to fizzle out, and those people aren't going to care about you in in you know a year. Yeah, you'll it, have been a, a part of a, a passing a fad. Trend. Yeah, and a lot has yeah. to do with brand loyalty and customer satisfaction. And um, a dedication that a customer has yeah. to a product and a brand, and and the likelihood that they will reorder, you know, you know, in the future, um, because they really believe in the product. So when I feel like when when sales explode overnight, that's always to be that's always a scary sign because your yeah. your your customer is too diverse and you're you're kind of stabbing in the dark of like what kind of customer you're kind of trying to reach and when you stab in the yeah. dark and you don't have a targeted um specific channel of like a specific community of of customers that becomes dangerous in my eyes yeah i agree yeah. it also it also is scary to me to think that, you know, the brands that I feel a level of affinity about, I, you know, they're brands that if I were to recommend them to a friend, it isn't just a blanket recommendation. You know, it's a very personalized, thoughtful, like, Mm. I love this for these reasons. And if I can identify that you're passionate about those similar, you know, attributes or, you know, Mm. qualities or values, like that's why it's, you know, there. The idea that, you know, a bunch of random people who don't know each other in the world just decide that they like the package of, you know, values and attributes you're offering and they buy it 
And even if they like it, it just feels like that's, you know, it's like that, that would be great if you're selling microwaves, you know, like, mm. oh, I put together a great microwave and like <laughs> a bunch of people bought it, you know, and, and, you know, that's if people see that they have that microwave, then that word of mouth, you know, yeah. might be of some value. But really, I'm just trying to sell it on the package that you see on the screen. Yeah. Where I think for us, it's like we want to we've always I think a good brand and a brand that has any kind of real brand equity, brand loyalty. It's more than just what you see on their website or their social media. It's like there's a soul to it. There's, you know, there's people, there's mm. people who care and are responsive. And, you know, there's, there's more than just the idea they made a, a product that I can buy and therefore I'm happy. Yeah. Which actually brings me to this like really like interesting subject that's kind of come up because of the Black Lives Matter protests. A lot of mm -hmm. brands, many different kinds, like from Nike to to Adidas, to, to small brands have been kind of polit politically pledging their allegiance to a certain group in society. Yeah. I, I personally, I'm not, I'm not going to tread on this lightly. I don't, I personally don't think that it is a brand's responsibility to voice a political view or a, to, to, push culture in a different direction I think um, art and um, and clothes and music are really reflections of what culture is doing right now but um, there was a lot of um, I would say there was a lot of pressure um, for, for brands to kind of pledge their allegiance to a specific mm. group and therefore like a lot of that felt very insincere and it felt really like fake in my opinion um do you think yeah. it is a brand's responsibility to like to push political ideas and to to push culture in a in some kind of direction do you think they have the the, res the sense of responsibility and morality to be able to do that that's an incredible heavy, question. It's an incredible topic. question. So, so it's an incredible question. And it's something that I, you know, not only have I thought about it a lot, but it's something that, you know, my co-founder and I talk about mm. every day. And where I stand on it is I think that things have changed to where what used to be the separation of business and politics just doesn't exist anymore. Mm. I think that, you know, there's this old idea of, you know, you don't bring politics to the workplace. You don't, you know, we're here to, to build the product that's great and, you know, reach consumers and deliver value in that way. And that's it. And I think that that is, you know, going extinct. Like, I think that that's becoming unacceptable because consumers demand more. And mm. I think part of what they demand is to actually know and have this more human connection with the people behind the brands. And I think when when people are curious and they want to know more, I think that that's where it, it becomes very difficult for a brand to hide behind some blanket, you know, a political stance. Uh, and, you know, it feels like they're pushed into being, you know, responsive to the moment. And I think that 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 discomfort explains you know these you know grand bold proclamations and you know you know virtue signaling that we've seen but i think that i all i too look at that and say that that's not the answer <laughs> like that's mm. not enough um because i think it's more about living the example and being open about it without using it as a marketing tool mm. um because i think that for us there, you know, someone asked us actually last week, you know, why do we, why do we make the decision to, uh, like boldly state our politics on our website? And it's funny because my co-founder and I don't even think of it that way. But if you read our about page, I'm sure a lot of people would say that feels very political, but to us, you know, politics is like, you know, it's, it's just the water we live and breathe in. Like most of our conversations start you know, around politics and we talk about, you know, the economy, we talk about all these different wide range of things. And 
you know, foundational to our, you know, like our strongest value as a company is actually conflict. We believe in this idea of productive conflict. So we don't look to say, oh, where are the areas in which we overlap and have these values? Let's make our company that and like, let's market that and try to like, you know, connect with people who are going to believe in these things or like are looking for a brand to believe in those things. Like we don't do that. So like we don't call ourselves sustainable. We don't call ourselves any brand that's like leading any of these charges or, you know, we don't try to claim any credit for like contributing to culture in that way. But what we do, you know, try to do is show people that we're humans that debate these things and then we end up making decisions. And they're decisions that we feel comfortable defending and we're proud of in many cases, and they're decisions that we're also open to criticism on. So, mm. um, you know, a couple of things that we've done, like when we first started getting, you know, our, our products shipped back, uh, like our inventory for the first time, like they'd send it, we wanted to eliminate boxes, but they, the, the factories are so old fashioned mm. that they're like, you know, we were like, okay, if you're sending us a big order of boots, like say it's, you know, a hundred boots, is there a way you could package them to where you just send us like a bunch of big boxes with the boots packaged, and, you know, and securely wrapped somehow? And they like were like, no, for quality purposes mm. and, uh, you know, also covering their, yeah. you know, liability. Their liability. They're like, we're, yeah. we're, they're like, we must ship it in a box. So then, you know, we were like, OK, so we get these boots shipped in a large box that comes off a truck. We open that box. There's a bunch of boxes inside. We then put all those boxes away. And when a customer orders, we put their box inside of another box to ship to a consumer. Yeah. All of that feels insane to me. Like, so we, we, we printed on the roll of tape that we use to tape our boxes. Uh, the world needs less boxes. And like, it's something that's like, it's not a marketing statement or a slogan or something that we're trying to win, you know, business on. Like you would never see that until you've already bought the product and you're opening it up for the first time. And it's also something that people have told us, like, why does it say that if you sent me a box inside of a box? But it says that because it's just something we believe, you know, and like if there's a way in the future that we can eliminate these boxes, like it's kind of like we put it out in the world so that it's something where it's like mm. we see the problem and we're kind of try to figure out something that we can do. So I think that our, you know, way of thinking about values is, is really that simple rather than being something that's like we stand with, you know, yeah. I think, you know, with, with, with so many of the corporate messages, I think they just fall flat because it's so easy to see, you know, you know, what's the, the racial gender makeup of your executive team of the people of your design mm -hmm. team, you know, what, you know, you know, are you paying people fairly? Are, you know, are there reports and accounts of people feeling mistreated and leaving and feeling, you know, disputes and lawsuits, like all of these things we see and we hear them, you know, we read about them being reported on. So to see these brands go out and try to sell a marketing message mm -hmm. to consumers just feels like, like we, we you know, consumers are smart. I think that yes. that's the thing. Like people, people are much smarter than I think a lot of, the traditional way of thinking about marketing, you know, gives people credit for. I think people, you know, what I've been saying, it's like people want to know more and they're, they're willing to do the research. So they're willing to read and pay attention because I think, you know, when people want to feel some connection to a brand, they feel like that's some extension of themselves or some extension mm -hmm. of their personality. So to grapple with that and some, you know, un savory things that are reading about that company and how their practices just doesn't feel right. doesn't sit right with consumers. And in an age of like infinite choice, it's just not, you know, like mm. it's not going to last long for if you're a brand that is that inconsistent, like you'll have people revolt. Yeah. So talking about this, the, where the age of infinite choice and um, talking about online, um, you know, marketing online selling online um we are we do face our you know we face this issue of being of competing with big tech companies who want to control the dialogue and control the the news feeds of everybody and ha so how do you go about um, how do you go about navigating that and how do you stand out in like such a crazy world of infinite choices 
um, where, whereby mainly the, the choices with bigger budgets and bigger backing have more, more power to, to, you know, become more known. Yeah, I will Is that I will important say, for uh, you? It, it is important and it's hard. It's it's hard. And it from a brand perspective, I think it's frustrating. You know, we, we talk about consumers making these decisions based on values and all, all of these things. It's also frustrating from a brand perspective, because my co-founder and I are probably as critical about Facebook as two people could be. He actually sent me an idea today. He was like, what if we create like uh, like a instant, like a, you know, like an account or a media account that basically just reports on these like terrible stories that all these tech companies like Facebook do just because like we, we, we have friends that work at these companies. We hear about things and we just like, we can't, you know, it's, it feels, it, it feels insane mm. to see what's happening on a daily basis with companies like Facebook. And yet as a brand to go and give them, you know, so much of your money because they have the best, most efficient, you know, most advanced, mm. you know, platform for reaching your customers. And that's just, it's, it, it feels unethical to, you know, for us to go and spend all this money on Facebook when we hate, you know, mm. their practices and object to so many of the decisions they make, object to, you know, the impact they're having on society and culture. Um, but it's one of those things where it's like, we feel like we have no, you know, in yeah. terms of, trying to reach, you know, finding new consumers, finding new, you know, finding, you know, areas to tell that story as a small brand. It's like, you can't go and buy, you know, billboards are actually becoming cheaper now, but you can't go and buy, you know, TV spots and radio spots. You can maybe afford some podcast spots. You can maybe, you know, afford some small specialty print stuff, but you can't really buy, you know, ads and print and you can't, you know, so in terms of paid marketing, your, your choices, you know, are, are, you know, are just can collapsing to where Facebook is mm. it. <laughs> it's becoming Absolutely. it. Yeah. I would say like, yeah, um, to me, I feel like with small brands, it's more important to really solidify relationships with loyal customers and the right customers. When I, I feel like when things, when you're, for example, with my brand, if we get, you know, mentions in like big media websites and stuff, we get an influx of new customers. That freaks me out a little bit because in this, in <laughs> some cases, they might be impulse buyers. They might be, right. and, and then that the rates of return is higher when you have customers who just come sure. from, from anywhere. So yeah, it is a struggle to compete in this really difficult um, marketplace where big guys like Facebook control how things, how information is delivered. Um, and I would say that, yeah, that is the struggle for all brands um, today. Yeah. And, but like one thing that's interesting is like we, part of my nature is to be as independent as possible. I really don't like putting all my eggs in one basket and relying on, you know, on say, yeah, like a tech company to, to decide how well my business um, is exposed. So newsletters, newsletters are awesome. And like, yeah. like calling, actually phoning customers, like loyal customers, who who you who you have this personal connection with who you know likes this kind of product and and just having that human contact with them even though you are a an online you know um, store there are so many ways you can have direct independent contact with with customers um, but it does take a lot of time and a lot of um, yeah. your own dedication to build those, those, um, those relationships. Um, but okay. So what do you have like a vision of the next two kind of two years? Do you think this pandemic <laughs> will, what's going to happen with to, to the rest of 2020 and 21, 2021? Yeah. Um, and where do you see 
your goals, you know, for the next few years? Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, picking up right on that last question, I think that that's something we've given a lot of thought to. It's, 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 you know, there's a number of reasons. There's all the problems we already discussed, but it also is one of those things where brands get addicted to the tools, the, you know, the Facebook and the reliance becomes something that as they mature and grow, they now can't stop, you know? Mm-hmm. Like we've talked to some pretty large brands that have told us like, if we stop marketing on Facebook, you know, we're like, our sales will decline like crazy mm-hmm. and our company will falter in, in a matter of a year or so. And, the, and like, That's scary, I'm talking man. about established, it's, yeah, I'm yeah. talking about established household brand names uh, where their marketing teams have told us that. So, you know, one of the things, and it's, a, it's becoming a popular idea, but like you said, newsletters and other ways of owning your own audience is super cr- critical because mm. it becomes, you know, cultivating an audience and finding ways to provide value to them that isn't just the product is also important if you yeah. care about them as people and if you if there's something at the heart of the brand there's a soul there there's some you know shared interests or passion so you know for us you know caring I think you know it should I guess we talked about it but it's like just the idea of learning and exploration is the story of our brand and it's something that is just be, it's become a value so you know, our idea of exploration and ideas of exploration, learning and conflict are things where it's like, those are social <laughs> values. And, you know, they're values that they're you know, like are best linked collected. to the human condition. That is what it right. is to be human. Yeah, right. And they're best reflected, you know, by us when we're interacting with people who care about our brand, you know, and not you know, not just like trying to think about them as another person to reach, but a person that like has, you know, they're an, an, another party. They can, provo- you know, be a, the other party to the conflict. They can be, they can help us explore. They can help us discover things like it, it becomes a two way, you know, uh, relationship. So we have are continuing to think through different ideas. Of how do we best serve them? How do we continue to, you know, if we can touch them in person, I think the COVID situation has changed the calculus on that a ton because mm-hmm. I would say one of the things we would I would have answered your question with is thinking like oh we as soon as we can we need to have some kind of physical you know presence like we need to try yeah. to get some pop-up location in New York or like partner somewhere to get in, in a store that will have the visibility and give us the ability to touch people in person but now it's it, it feels like I'm thankful that we didn't move on that earlier because it obviously would have been, you know, a bunch of lost money and a lost cause. Mm. Um, it's also for the future. It's hard to tell, you know, what's how to how to make those decisions. It's just become harder because it's a lot more risk factored in. Mm. But, you know, when I think about the future of season three, I really think it's about the future challenges for us as founders. And, you know, for, you know, the you know, what will grow as a company is you know, we now have learned how to make boots. And that's something we didn't know how to make, you know, two years ago. And it feels, you know, kind of silly to say, but, you know, our, you know, goal isn't to just make boots forever and to learn, you know, like we want to continue to get better at making boots. We want to perfect our boot and we want to learn from the feedback and continue to be better at making footwear. But at the same time, we're way more, intellectually challenged by the idea of what can we do next? Like what, out, what else out there is, you know, could we try our hand at and learn the process of and mm. really get in as deep as we got into, you know, the process of making boots. So, you know, there's a lot of different products that we can think about in our, you know, kind of, um, kind of brand, brand universe. And we're, you know, starting to work on them. So we, we actually, we're, we're going to be releasing a sock. We, we went through like this lengthy process. I saw process them on Instagram. They were cool. Yeah. We, I'm sort of jealous because I've wanted to make socks for a while. <laughs> so, so we wanted to, so the, the thing with our like design and manufacturing process with the boot is that the factories in Italy, uh, the production, the person we worked with for production overseeing the factories in Italy. So it's been like this, you know, early morning, late night communication, you know, most of it not in person, you know, except for when we visited. 
relationship, which works. And, you know, with the technology, like everyone's used to Zoom now, mm. so like things happen. But we were really thinking like, can we manufacture and design something all in the US? And, you know, because the, there's also the concerns about, you know, customs and so many of the things that we yeah. dealt with that are important duties, especially now that Trump <laughs> yeah. is uh, president, you know, when yes. he increased the tariffs on f f imports from France, that was like heavy, mm -hmm. man, really heavy. And like I increasing yeah. tariffs on imports from China, um, many American brands who are making in America using yeah. raw materials from China. That's the thing that's so short-sighted right. about doing that is that we are such a globalized world today that no matter where you produce your, your product, the ingredients come from everywhere, which is like, yes. yeah, that's exactly. True. Yeah, yeah. So we, so we're, you know, we're working on other products where, you know, the sock is something where it's like we found a factory in North Carolina that, you know, has been making socks for a long time. And it's interesting because I, I think the opportunity, so with the boot, the factory that we produce is a small, like family owned factory that use most of the, you know, their history has been doing uh, like their own private labels. And they used to have like some white label business that they would do for some brands that, you know, were European brands, mm. but they, you know, they, they really were, were able to get by. And if you think about it, it's because, you know, years ago, you used to be able to make a product and say like, oh, this is footwear made in Italy. It doesn't really matter what the brand name is. And like that sells. But now with, you know, brands, marketing, all of values, all of these things layered on top, that just doesn't, you know, appeal to consumers as much. So that factory was way was pretty much one of the only people we talked to that was willing to take a chance on us mm. because they were open to the future of you know white label business they were open to the idea of you know we're gonna we know the that we have the expertise we have the machinery we have all of the tools and we can consult to you but ultimately you're responsible for all of these pieces of building a brand distribution and you know yeah. and all that so the factory in North Carolina with the socks is actually the same way where they've got their own private brands, um, but they're becoming more and more open to the idea that, you know, there are other brands that want to make socks mm -hmm. and they have a great reputation. Like they have, you know, they've invested in their factory and they, you know, they have everything we would need as a brand knowing nothing mm -hmm. about <laughs> sock production. To, to, and that, to that will be so. the case more so with like the econ the economy being, you know, so damaged by the COVID-19, I think more and more factories are in threat of closing down um, of or, or downsizing. And um, I think for for the world, this, pro this provides like an opportunity for small brands, small companies um, to flourish and, and therefore diversify our market with a lot more niche and interesting product, interesting ideas. And hopefully, I doubt that this will be enough, but hopefully this will be enough to be a kind of countervailing force to corporation. I mean, it used to be like back in the 80s, but, but I think it's the, the, the scales tip so far into the favor of corporation. But my hope is that, you know, more people will be inspired like you, like by your story to, to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's a, that's a big part of, it's a big part of our, you know, I guess our, our ethos and what we want to put out into the world because we want like our feeling, my feeling is, you know, we like flat out did not know how to make a boot, you know, two years ago. Uh, and now it's something where it's like, we understand the very technical, you know, very specific details of it uh, to where doing that process again is much less scary than it, than it was the first mm -hmm. time around. And we're actually trying to do, you know, there's, there's some other like friends that we have that design, you know, they're, they're apparel designers that have never done footwear and they're really curious about footwear. And we're like, Oh, we would love to show you like, we're, yeah. we're. so that's one thing we're doing. But the other thing is just like trying to, to exactly what you just said, put that inspirational message out there because I think that it's one of those things where it's like, I'm a person who's loved footwear and I've, you know, been a sneaker collector, been all of these things. And I've always been enamored with, the, the, you know, wanting to create something. One of the things we recently did, this is like only a couple of weeks old now, 
is we released this book that is, a, it's kind of, we wanted to tell the story of like what we've done to put it out there as a thing to kind of say, you know, people like us could do this, like mm. you could do this too. Um, but the, so the theme of the book is that we were just winging it, you know, which is the truth of what our company has been. Because like I said, everything we did was the first time. Um, so it starts out with the idea of like, does anyone know how to make boots? And there's a lot of like questioning and a lot of like the themes about, you know, asking questions, getting help, figuring out, you know, just trying things and being okay with maybe failing um, is a big kind of like a thematic way that we put it together. But really, it just showcases all of the images and prototypes and drawing sketches um, and ends on the idea of like, does anyone know how to make socks? Just because that's like a more more present challenge nice. that we're in the midst of but yeah yeah in the, in the future i think we want to continue to take on you know new challenges and try to build i think that i'm a big believer in the outdoor space because i think that there are it's a space that i think is becoming more inclusive mm. in the way that people think about it i think that traditionally you know a lot of the heritage outdoor brands were you know founded by people who were you know, true, truly, you know, enamored with a specific outdoor lifestyle and the communities that were created and follow those brands were people who resonated with that lifestyle. And I think that, you know, obviously it's proliferated into like, you know, the mainstream to where people are very disconnected from, you know, you know, the idea. I, th I feel like the this, yeah, there's like nothing more unattractive than like a person who's just obsessed with gear and gear only. And that yeah. like they, they don't actually like use, like they don't yeah. go out and like use their gear or like they don't. There's a super know. common person now. <laughs> yeah, totally. Like gearheads, man. But I mean, that's, you know, that's the, the purpose of like all this gear is to like, it's, it's, they yeah. are tools to experience the world, like, yes. you know, and um, I think, yeah, it's really, I think you're totally right. People, you know, especially because of the lockdown, people have like had the outdoors and, and human connect, uh, con contact taken away from them. Mm -hmm. And now, then now, you know, when something's taken away from you, you, you really appreciate it once it's given back yeah. to you. Um, so I can totally see that, um, you know, I, I, I really don't want to call it a, a trend, but, you know, a trend forecaster would call it right. the outdoor um, yeah. thing a trend. But, you know, it, it's, it's always, you know, we've always had clothes made specifically for doing stuff. Like that's right. not new. It's uh, clothes yeah. have always been made for doing specific things. And, um, yeah, I think that's a really wonderful, you know, focus to have. I, I think what's, what's changing is really just the, you know, the way I think people identify, because I think that, you know, in the past, I think 20 years ago, I think that there wouldn't have been as many people living in, say, New York City that feel like things sold at REI are for them, you know, mm. like it would feel like, oh, I would have to identify differently. I would have to identify as, you know, somebody who, you know, escaped the city more often to be a person that, you know, really enjoyed the, you know, something that had yeah. a functional purpose to it. But I think that, you know, I think there's been more of a, a breakdown of those barriers. And yes, yeah. while there are people who take it to the extreme where it's <laughs> like, oh, they just are obsessed with the gear, mostly because they're inspired by Instagram and Instagram curators. <laughs> but I think that I think that it's just uh, an appreciation of the fact that like, so much why, yeah. why, why not have clothes that have purpose and have function? And why not think about, you know, your wardrobe as a set of tools that allow you, you know, empower you to do different things. And mm. it's, it's great to like, even just a simple idea of just having something, you know, you want to go from point A to point B and it's raining out. Like, I think yeah. that it's just, it's great to have a Gore-Tex jacket in that situation. And I think that it's, it's kind of crazy that I think, you know, even a person like myself, I would say 15 years ago, I probably would have looked at that and been like, uh, <laughs> you know, not really the, not really the, you know, I'm not 
like I'm an urban person. Like I don't see myself in that. Um, mm. But I think that there's been a, you know, you know, change in the way that I think yeah. people think about themselves and their relationships with these, these items. I think like when you talk about the kind of cross pollination of things in different areas coming together and making new things like outdoor gear coming into the city and making a mm -hmm. new idea like that. I love when that happens, just like, you know, in the 90s when hip hop embraced denim like the, the workwear culture and like, yeah. you know, that makes a new, totally. And that make, uh, or Tommy, or like, you know, like that makes a new thing and it makes something exciting again. And like, it gives yeah. something new, like a new identity, which is really exciting. So I think outdoor is having that kind of cross pollination right now, but yeah. yeah. Um, well, that's all we have time for today, unfortunately. But for those guys who want to check out um, Season 3, how, how can they do that? Yeah, so you can find us at Season3.com. And then on Instagram, you can find us at Season3 with two underscores between Season and 3. Nice. Well, thanks so much, Jared. It's really great talking to you. Bye, everybody. Great talking to you, too.